Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're here visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming and being with us uh, for worship. You find us this summer in a series on the book of Genesis. As we um, Actually, one particular part of Genesis is we're looking at the life of Abraham. And this morning, we're going to be in Abraham, in Abraham chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17. I was thinking during the beautiful offertory as I was soothed almost to sleep by the music. Okay, it's, it's time for it to wake up again, right? Okay, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, the title of our series as we're looking at the life of Abraham this summer has been uh, Living in Light of God's Promises. That Abram was someone who is called into relationship with God and every step along the way had to always be living in light of God's promises, many of whom, many of which were not brought to full fruition in the course of his lifetime. He had to live by faith, just like we do. Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in with Genesis chapter 17. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word this morning and we pray that you would open it up to us. uh, That we would have hearts that are soft to you. That we would be able to hear you speak and that uh, we would um, bring our lives to you that they might be changed by the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 17, if you're using one of uh, the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 11 of that Bible. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God said, No, 
But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of the house Those born in the house and those brought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. There's something different about uh, reading scripture when you're reading it aloud. I've never thought it was possible to say the word circumcision that many times in one reading, but there it is. This chapter of Genesis, chapter 17, if you've been with us, we've been talking about God making promises to his people, making a covenant with his people, that he binds himself to his people in love. Well, we see that action, that thrust of God's work of calling and binding his people to himself uh, ratcheted up yet another degree here in the cha- this chapter as we look at God's covenant. Because God's making His promise, His covenant with Abraham, so that all of the riches of God's grace and favor and forgiveness and love would come into the lives of Abraham and all his descendants, both spiritual and physical. In other words, that all the blessings and richness of God would come into our lives as well. Because God means for us, His people, to live in light of that covenant with our eyes on Him, living for Him. This passage this morning drives home the centrality of this covenant between God and His people, between God and Abraham, and now between God and us. <clears throat> so this morning, <clears throat> we're going to look a little bit about of, of the nuts and bolts of what's happening here as God makes covenant with us. We're going, to, we're going to see the heart of the covenant and the continuity of the covenant, and finally, the sign of the covenant. First, the heart of the covenant. As we said, God several times has come to Abraham Uh, and made promises to him. He comes first to him in chapter 12, calls him out of this pagan land. He says, come and go into the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you that land. I'm going to give you um, multitudes of descendants who are more than the sand on the seashore. I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations, to all families of the world. He gives Abraham this incredible promise. Then Genesis 15, we saw him reiterate that promise and seal it with this... uh, this ceremony of, of, of ratification of promised Abraham where these animals were slaughtered and God himself walked between the pieces of the animals effectively saying this, Abraham, if I don't keep my covenant of love for you, may I be like these animals, just ripped apart. I'm sealing myself. I'm promising myself to you, Abraham. But here when we get to chapter 17, that the, we see the promises being ratcheted up even further. You know, before he's talked about land and descendants. He's talked about being a blessing. <clears throat> well, here we see God actually say for the first time that his promises for descendants are actually going to come through his wife, Sarah. If you're with us last week in chapter 16, we saw Abraham and Sarah try to go to plan B to somehow obtain an heir. And Abraham and Sarah, or Sarah gave her handmaiden 
Hagar to Abraham and said, go have a daughter with her and it will be counted to me. As they were scrambling to try to somehow make God's promises uh, be fulfilled. But here we see God saying, no, Abraham, it's going to be through Sarah. You are 99 years old. She is 90 and I'm going to miraculously bring a child through her. As part of these great promises that he increases here, he changes their names. He changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means uh, exalted father who for 99 years old had no children. And he changes his name now to the father of nations, the father of multitudes. And Sarah and Sarai, both meaning princess, both of them, though, receiving new names as God is saying, I am bringing my promises home to bear for you. And he goes on, too, we see a new element of the covenant when he says this is going to be an everlasting covenant. It will, there will be no end. I will make it with you and your children after you. But at the center of all this, what really stands at the center of the covenant? Land, descendants, blessing. For the very first time, and certainly not for the last in the Bible, we see the very heart of the covenant spelled out for Abraham and his descendants and for us. Look with me in in verse uh, 7. God says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Do you hear what he's saying? God is saying to Abraham, listen, we've talked about land, we've talked about descendants, but I've got to tell you, the real jewel in the covenant, the real center of my promise for you is that I will be your God. In other words, Abraham, you don't simply get the Christmas presents, you get the giver of the gifts. You get me, you get God himself, is what he comes and tells Abraham here. And throughout the Bible, this stands at the very heart of biblical faith. And it's the very heart of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? That at the end of the day, we get God. That we're not excluded. That we're not cast away. But rather, that we are embraced by the living God himself, bringing us to himself. We see it first promised here, I will be your God. And run straight through the Old and New Testament. There, there's a scene with Moses when he, is getting re- when he has led God's people out of their bondage in Egypt. And they're in the desert. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And he comes down and finds out that all the people have already given themselves to idolatry. They've, they've constructed this golden calf. And they've already abandoned the God who just miraculously rescued them. In the middle of this, Moses gets into a conversation with God. And God says... You are a stiff-necked people. I will destroy you. So here's what I'm going to do to protect you. I'm going to send you ahead into the promised land. You will go and be successful there, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, no, 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 no. We're not going unless you go with us. What will the nation say if you send us ahead, but wouldn't come and be with us, your own people? You see, Moses stops the deal right there and pleads with God and says, you must come because you are the heart of the covenant. Forget the land, forget the gifts. If you don't come with us, then we are nothing. Because God stands at the heart of the covenant. Uh, It's what's given in expression in the Psalms. We saw it in our call to worship this morning in Psalm 145. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Psalm 40, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. My God. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
Psalm 140, I say to the Lord, You are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. Psalm 146, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. See, the psalmist is crying out saying, the whole center of all of this, God, is that you are my God. And so that I can come and bring my praise and bring my prayers and bring my complaints even. Because you are my God and you have promised yourself to me. Jesus gets on the scene and teaches his disciples to pray this way. Our Father, not just my God, distant and in the sky, our Father, the one who is close, who cares for us intimately. And then we see Jesus, God in the flesh. As Isaiah promised when he said there was this one coming who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The very name that Jesus is named in the beginning of Matthew at his birth. As Jesus comes, John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We get God John 14, Jesus says to one of his disciples, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am God with you. Matthew 28, as he promises his disciples, as he gives them the great commission, he says this, Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. The Bible ends on this amazing note in Revelations 21. John says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. All of this as we track through scripture, do you see what they're saying? What do we get as God's people? We get him. We get His presence in our lives. We get His care. We get relationship with Him that can never be broken. We get God. Much, much more than simply getting the gifts of God. Let let, let me ask us this question. If we really get a hold of that, do do our prayers reflect this? Do our prayers reflect that at the end of the day, the heart of God's covenant and the heart of our desires is that we get God Himself? Now, I understand that can totally sound like the guilt-inducing question, right? Because you, you and I are both thinking about all the stuff we pray for. It is not wrong to bring our requests to God. But I think we have to ask ourselves this. What's, even as we come and bring our requests, what's driving the boat for us as we come to God and pray? And is it this, that we would know more of God, the reality of His existence in our lives, or that we would simply get the stuff that He has to give? He cares about us. He's a father who generously gives, but he gives that we might know him, that he is the heart of the covenant. Is this the substance of our prayers, the heart of our dreams? Is this the fire at the center of our life that we are coming to to give ourselves life and warmth and heat? What is it that we are finding our comfort in, if not this, that he is our king and that he is our God here with us even now? What is it that we're essentially saying to ourselves? You know, if I just had this in my life, life would be all that I wanted it to be. What are the things other than the presence of our God we look to? You see, God is not simply the icing on the cake of our dreams, of our good children, of our happy marriage, of our financial security, of our good health, of our satisfying retirement. God is not the icing on the cake. He is the cake. He is the prize. He is the thing that is promised to us that we might know Him. That is the privilege above all privileges. And so if that's not true uh, for you or for me, if that's not the deepest joy of our lives, if you're trying to find your true and deep satisfaction, your deepest joy in anything else, in anything other than God, 
If you are coming to something else, then we, then we are living outside of the heart of the covenant. Because at the heart of the covenant is God himself. He is our treasure. He is the prize that we are given. But the truth is, we, we all have spiritual amnesia to one degree or another, right? Because we can come and, and, as I can, preach in this prayer. Of course, God stands at the center of everything. Of course, He should be my heart's desire. And even now, feeling the pull and the tug of other good things that would compete to be the ultimate thing that we love. We have spiritual amnesia. We know what is true. And yet we forget and we run after other things. And yet in all of it, what happens? God continually, graciously, patiently calling us back, calling us to Himself, bidding us to repent again and find our life in Him. Not simply just this kind of intellectual turn. Of course, I should desire God above all things. I will therefore bring my will and everything in me into submission to that one fact, and I will follow after it, and I will not turn to the left or the right from here on out. So, right? I won't, No. Of course it begins with our minds being captured, but it it, it must go much deeper than that for us. It must come not simply as a turn of the intellect for us, but it must be driven down deeply into our hearts. It's what our Puritan forefathers used to call experiential religion. That the goodness of God and His promises, the beauty and glory of Christ and the gospel must get down deeper and deeper into our bones. It must be worked through all of our being. That it really becomes not just the thing that we say we love, but the thing that we love. The thing that we love. Becoming more and more the true nourishment of our souls. And frankly, for some of us, it's been a long time since we've tasted God's goodness and presence like this. Let me just say now... Remember that you are hungry. Hungry in such a way that um, the other things we, long, we look to will not fill you because you are meant to feed only on God. Don't continue to live life with low expectations for who God is and who He might be in your life and what the intimacy of that relationship might look like. Don't settle, don't settle for chips and a Diet Coke when the very bread and wine of God's presence are offered to us. It's on offer here. And we must, of course, bring it to our minds as we look back at Scripture and say, look, God Himself stands at the center of the promises. But we must bring it to our hearts as we take that and we pray that God would dig it down deep. As we come and sing together about the goodness and glory of Christ. As we pray prayers that are not simply our asking of God but giving praise to Him. As we step into those disciplines of life of turning our hearts and our minds towards Him. Then I think we're going to taste more of what we are meant to taste right here at the center of the covenant. God Himself. There is more for us to know. So we see here uh, first in this passage the heart of the covenant. When, he, when God comes to Abraham and he says, I will be your God. That's the heart of the covenant. But we see in this passage as well something of the continuity of the covenant. The, in other words, the covenant is not meant, simply made with Abraham. But it extends much broader than that. There's continuity in two different ways. One, there's continuity in the, the covenant comes for Abraham and for his offspring, for his descendants down through time. And we're going to also see there's a continuity here of God's promise between the Old Testament and the New Testament as God's promises are even heightened further as we come to the, Old, to the New Testament. <clears throat> so first, this continuity of offspring, verse 7 and, and the, the verses following that again and again, he says, I'm coming, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring after you, that I will be your God, that I will be their God. 
Abraham's great angst of life up until now has been, will God provide an heir for me? Is it Ishmael, who at this point now is 13 years old? And God says, no, it's going to be Isaac. You're going to have another child, the child of promise. And you will have offspring after you. The covenant will not just be with you, Abraham, but with this incredible family of yours that will spread out in time and space across the whole world. Not simply his physical descendants, and this is the note that's picked up in the New Testament, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham as well. All those who come to faith in this one true God, Paul in Romans tells us, are Abraham's spiritual children, as we receive the promises given to Abraham, brought home to us through Abraham's true descendant, Jesus, for us. You see, he's saying there is continuity. This, this promise, this covenant spreads out across the world. And it's important for us to note, because here he is saying, look, your children are a part of this covenant community. Abraham, I am taking you and turning you into a family and a nation and descendants who are centered on me, who have a special relationship with me. And he's saying your children are living, breathing, active parts of that. And here's where he brings some of the weight of that. Notice when he gives the promise of circumcision in verse 14 when he says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you circumcision and it is going to be a sign. It's going to be a physical representation of the fact that I have made this promise to you. And he says, you must, be, you must be circumcised, and everybody in your, all the men in your household. And he says, after you, all of your children will be circumcised on the eighth day. Okay, so he is establishing this with a group of adults, right? And he's saying, you're going to be circumcised, and all your, even your infant children after you. But what happens if he doesn't do this? What happens if he doesn't? Uh, circumcise the next generation of believers. You see what it says there? Even an infant, if he's not circumcised on the eighth day, then he has broken my covenant. Okay, now here's why that's important. You can only break a covenant, you can only break this sort of promise relationship if you're in the relationship, if you're in the covenant, right? So when he says, if you don't, if you don't circumcise this next generation, they will have broken the covenant. Why? Because they are covenant children Already, And you are going to circumcise them because they are already part of the family. And so they are going to receive the sign of the promise. All this to say, right here in chapter 17, we see God building a people. And that includes his children. And these families and these children and the next generation matter to God. He establishes this covenant of continuity. But there's a second kind of continuity. He says, not only is it to your children, we see a continuity in the flow of Scripture as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. As we come to the New Testament and we see in the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus, we see the promises brought to bear so much more in their fullness. As we see the true sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. As we see Jesus, the only one to perfectly keep God's law, who's able to keep the covenant requirements where we couldn't. And it's given as a gift to us. We see all of this sealed to us in Jesus and what we see as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that God still has a covenant people. It's not as if God cared about families and a people in the Old Testament and suddenly we get to the New Testament and God becomes a 21st century American individualist. And he only cares about individuals in relationship with him. It's all about me and Jesus. He says, no, I've been building my people from the very start here with Abraham. And as we move into the New Testament... 
that family becomes international and multi-ethnic and it becomes centered in Jesus. But it is still God's covenant people. In other words, we as part of Christ's people and we as part of this church are part of God's covenant people. We are bound together to each other in a relationship of a covenant family just as people in the Old Testament were. We have real obligations to each other. We have real connection to each other because we're connected to each other in Christ. When Christ comes and gives his spirit, he takes this family and makes it international and makes it go across all boundaries that would break down people. Peter reiterates this when he gives this great speech at the day of Pentecost as God's spirit is poured out on the church. And he says this as part of the speech. He preaches to the crowd and he reiterates this Old Testament inclusion of children in the covenant community. He says this to the people, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. He says in the New Testament now, just like in the Old Testament, God cares about families. He cares about your offspring. He is building a people. Now, you may be here as uh, a follower of Christ, and, and you may be able to look back and say, well, well, my parents were followers of Jesus, and my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, and you can look back and see the continuity of God's covenant with your actual family as he was faithful generation after generation after generation. Or maybe you're here and you've come to Christ and no one else in your family that you know of is a Christian. Well, you are being brought into a covenant family. And if you have children, they will be a part of that family as well. God is beginning something new in your family line. Bringing you into the covenant as well. Okay, God himself stands at the heart of the covenant. His presence, that is the treasure. And he says, I'm not giving it just to you, Abraham. I'm giving it to your children. I'm giving myself to them. I'm giving myself to the world as I call people into this covenant relationship with me. Well, the third thing we see here uh, is that not only does he call that, not only is there continuity in the covenant, but there is a sign that's given in the covenant. There is a physical marker that's made to show that people are in the covenant. Now, God didn't have to do this. Okay? He didn't have to bring circumcision in chapter 17 for God's people to be covenant people. They already were. He comes to Abraham and gives him, the, gives him circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he's already established. But why bring a sign? Well, we, you know, we use signs as well to remember things. If you're married, when you look down and look at your wedding ring, you, you are seeing a sign that's representative to you of what is the deepest reality of who you are now, that you're a married person. Or in uh, a much less serious way, think about what happens in professional athletics, okay? When, when somebody is, um, uh, goes through the draft and is chosen by a team. It's on ESPN, you're watching on TV, you're waiting to see who your team's going to get. They pick the guy, and what happens? That person is given what? A team jersey or a hat or something from the team, right? Because they're saying, you now belong to the team. Now, they're also saying, and we're paying you $15 million for that. <laughs> All illustrations break down, but, uh, but not really, because what does God say? You're not getting $15 million, you're getting me at the heart of the covenant. So just as an athlete's given this sign that he now belongs to the team, here, even in God's people in chapter 17, they're, they're being given a sign that they have been brought into uh, the community of God's people. In Old Testament, here in chapter 17, the sign is circumcision. Now, if you know anything about sort of ancient Near Eastern cultures, you may have read that circumcision was not unique to, uh, 
to Abraham and his family and to the Israelites. Uh, there were some in Egypt, uh, especially in priestly families, that were circumcised. There were other cultures of the day that practiced this, not the other cultures in Canaan where they are being brought into. The point here is not that God dreams up something new, but instead rather that he, takes this, he picks this sign and says, for you, Abraham, and your family, this is special. It now represents something for you. Uh, you know, why circumcision? He doesn't tell us. Maybe there's something powerful going on about the fact for Abraham all his 99 years up until now waiting for this promised heir and unable to produce it himself, God gives him in the promise circumcision as a sign, a very real and physical reminder of his weakness to bring about his own descendants, his weakness to bring about the power and promises of God himself. Now, in the Old Testament here, this sign is given to Abraham and all the males in his household, all the ones who are acquired by him as servants and Ishmael. It's not some sort of like ethnic uh, dividing line because others are included in when they come into the covenant family of God. And as we said, it's given to infant boys when they turn eight days old. Um, but we point to all this because it doesn't end here in chapter 17. Just as we said that there is continuity in the covenant, that it goes to children and it goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, here's some of the take-home for us. The covenant sign, just like the covenant, goes from the Old Testament to a New Testament expression as well. Because just as God's covenant family continues, so does His covenant promises and His covenant sign. In the Old Testament here, in Genesis 17, it is circumcision. And when we come to the New Testament, the covenantal sign for God's people is baptism. That's what happens next. Because God has not forgotten His promises. He has not forgotten His community. He has not forgotten His people. And He has certainly not forgotten children. And He takes this Old Testament concept, brings it into the New Testament, and gives it a new and different sign. Now, just as Abraham experienced that as an adult when that sign is first given, that's the way the first believers received it. Acts 2, again, in Peter's speech uh, to the um, people of Jerusalem who have gathered on the day of Pentecost, he says this, as they cry out and say, what are we supposed to do in light of what you've just told us about Jesus? Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. And then he goes on with the line we've already said, For the promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What should we do as God's new covenant people? Be cir- not be circumcised, be baptized. And this promise is for you and your children. And just as God gave that promise and that sign in the Old Testament to the children, He gives it to the children in the New Testament as well. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 speaks of the relationship of circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New. He says this in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. In Jesus also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Christ in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. He's talking about what Christ did for us as a circumcision, as Christ, this circumcised one true representative of Israel, dies resurrected for us. And he compares it to the washing of baptism that's given to us. Those signs of circumcision and baptism being woven together here. Just as we've said, you know, each time God gives His promises and ratchets it up another degree, 
Well, we see that as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as we've said, as all these promises come to their fulfillment in Christ, and as the promise goes, goes international, as Jews and Gentiles are brought into the people of God. Well, it happens that uh, God's, that His, um, the increase of the glory of His covenant plays out in sort of a more glorious representation of the covenant sign as well. Because think about it, the Old Testament sign, very bloody, replaced with a bloodless sign in the New Testament of baptism. Why? Because all the blood has been shed that needs to be shed, and it was done by Christ. Now it is no longer the sign of judgment and bloodletting, but one of healing and one of cleansing in baptism. And for at least half our congregation, surely there's this implicit question in the back of your mind, too, as you read chapter 17. Circumcision, fine. What about the women? Why don't we get any sign of the covenant? What do we see in the New Testament? That the covenant sign is given to both men and women as well. As Paul says in Galatians, you know, chapter, I think it's 3, he says, you know, there's no, there's no longer any male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We are one in Christ. And so the covenant sign is given to women as well, showing some of our equality in the faith. God's covenant is for all of us together as God's covenant people. And the implication for us, as we've hinted at, is that this sign is for all of God's people, and that means for our children as well. If we had gone from an Old Testament promise and covenant and covenant sign that was for everybody, everyone in the family, including the children, and then we moved to the New Testament and God somehow backed off from the bounty of that promise, you would expect very clear teaching in Scripture that that's the case. But instead, everything is just increased and poured out more and more. It is for our kids as well. Okay, let me try to tie this together just with a, just a couple points of application. First for us is we apply this personally. In Christ, you have been brought into the covenant family and given the heart of the covenant. You've been given God himself. And so in those moments when that is very hard to remember and very hard to see in your life, then you need to remember this, that you are a baptized, signed, sealed member of God's people. Puritans used to talk about improving upon our baptism, remembering it, taking it in, using that sign to speak the gospel to ourselves. About a year ago, uh, I, I baptized a couple of the children in our church who, who happened to be, um, they, they were about three at the time, uh, and after we baptized these kids, we talked to the parents and, and found out that for days after that, when, whenever all the kids would, would, would be taking their bath, that they, they'd practice baptizing each other. And, and one of the children walking around the house saying this, I'm baptized. And in one sense for us, as we personally take this home, that is actually what you are to say to yourself. I am baptized. Which is a picture for me, not simply of my faith, but much more of God's faithfulness for me. He has promised me himself. He is the treasure. And he has gone to the greatest lengths on the cross to make sure that promise is brought home for me. So you as a believer, when you remember that you are a baptized person in Christ's family, you can remember that you have the strongest of promises and the strongest of signs that you are his. Personally, secondly, corporately, let me just say this, kind of where we ended in this, of, of, of God's promise for his people and for his children. We have a responsibility together 
to care about the continuity of God's covenant. And that means we have a responsibility to care together about the handing off of the faith from one generation to the next. And that means that as a church family, we must care enormously for our children. For our children. We must actively care for them and love them. That is not simply the responsibility of their biological parents. When we have children baptized in this church, remember there is a vow for the congregation as well. You do all in your power to assist these parents as they raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do this together. When you look and see the children of other members of the church, in some actual and profound sense, you need to look at them and say, they are my children as well. Because we are a part of the same family. How are you going to show that care for those children? There are a lot of ways you can do that around here. Pray for the children of our church. Maybe pick a family and pray for them and for their children. Serve the children of our church. Work in the nursery. Once every couple months, sign up. You are doing gospel work there. Even as you change diapers. Teach Sunday school. Some of you whose kids are grown up, adopt church grandchildren and make them your own. These are your children and grandchildren because we together are participating in God's covenant faithfulness across the generations where he brings himself to us, to us as a family, and to our children. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and thank you that you are the treasure. And that is so hard to put our hands around some days would that shine more gloriously for us even right now and for us as we come and receive another sign of your promises and goodness as we come together to the lord's table as we eat and drink together experiencing your grace poured out on us god help us to remember our baptism and what it signifies that you have sealed yourself to us and may we love the next generation love our children and invest our lives in such a way that we would see and be a part of your work of making the kingdom grow and continue. And would our children love you even more deeply than we do? We ask this in the name of our covenant Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.